Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Dispatches. I have not done an audio podcast in quite a while. Uh, there's a reason for that. But I'm with a special friend, special guest, who I have not seen in approximately a decade. And that is a photographer, artist, metal worker, traveler, adventurer, tourer of the equator, Monique Stodder. How are you, Monique? I'm doing great. It's been, I think, a decade. At least a decade. And my original intention here, people, was to do a video interview with, with Monique. But the problem is, because Monique's life is the way Monique's life is and has been, it, I would have had to have shot 10 or 12 hours of video to make this work because <laughs> her life is too interesting. Uh, it, really is, it really is the case of being faced with, um, we need to do this audio because we're probably going to talk about so many different things. But I, um, the, the, the side trivia thing here, which you might not even know, I thought about this last night. I think you are the person who turned me on to Miles Davis. No way. Yeah, because when you had a you had an apartment in Paris, yeah. and my wife and I came over to go to Perpignan, and we stopped in Paris on the way to see you, and you had kind of blue Miles Davis playing. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, and I that's probably since that time frame is the album I've listened to more than any other <laughs> album by far. That's cool. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's one of my Monique's daughter memories, and um, so as I said in the intro, well, how would you even describe yourself now if I didn't know you and I met you and said, Monique, what do you do? Uh, visual artist. Okay. Uh, yeah, because everything visual. I, I just, I'm a creator. I love to create. I've always created since I was little. Um, I never went, I, my, all my academics, it was never about the art, but I've always um, loved the arts. And it was only until you know, after with my thesis work that I combined photography that it actually then took off in that way. But then after my son was born in 2010, um, I just slowed down and shifted gears and then got, I've always was curious about um, welding and metalworking. So, and then it's shifted to that. And then, yeah, it'll never stop. I mean, the the chameleon, but you (laughs) had a, a lot of your creative life was based around photography, but how you came to photography is an interesting story, which we touched on just hanging out last night and talking about this, which was you were headed towards a double master's in international relations and history. You were going to school in Switzerland. You had your thesis project to do, which you thought was going to be one thing, and then it took a right turn. And explain this story, because it's a pretty interesting photography origin story. Well, just to back up a little bit, so I went to... um, I was a year at Boston University and then three years um, at Boulder for undergrad. And that's when I, I dabbled into photography. I took a few photography courses and I just, I loved it. But then, then I went to Switzerland to do graduate work um, and a very conservative institute. And uh, my professor who was saying, he, I wanted to do something on cashmere. You know, I was interested in ethnic nationalism. And then he he's like, well, you know, have you ever considered uh, Sri Lanka? <laughs> of course. Of course. And so um, I did research on it, and I said, if I'm going to spend six months of my life doing research, I want to go there. I want to be there on the ground. But I didn't want to study, you know, the cycle. The idea was these, like, the cycle of, like, failed negoti- peace negotiations over, you know, two or three decades. And... Um, and I, so I just, I just wanted to go. And so I, th- I had that idea and to, to kind of analyze and interview different people about the, who are in, on the Tamil side and on the Sinhalese side. And, um, and then after a couple months of just, you know, banging my head against the walls, like, this isn't going anywhere. This isn't interesting. Um, I'm still dealing with statistics, and I, I want to put a face to the situation. And across the street of the Center of Ethnic Studies was Médecins Sans Frontières, and I was like, wow, here's an international humanitarian organization making an inhumane situation humane. What if I could document their work in the field and get firsthand information, you know, on the ground of their, of what, you know, and I did research, you know, of MSF just in general on how it started in, in the 60s after the Biafra incident mm-hmm. in, or in, situation in Africa. And, um, and I, so... I convinced 
my professor, this institute, that I could use photos. And I had my old FM2 Nikon camera, and mm -hmm. I just, um, and, 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 and I had my Swiss passport. Oh, I mean, so I'm Swiss-American, and I used my Swiss passport to get across. They said, sure, you can come and document our work, but you have to get to our places all by yourself. Uh -oh. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I had my Swiss passport, and, I, and they just, everybody thought I worked for the Red Cross, because, like, who is this Western girl, you know, you know, I was in my 20s at the time, so yeah, and I was I was able to get in. I was a chameleon and we took pictures, and and I was and I and because I was in the Northeast, and it was really hard for Westerners, regular journalists at that time, to get into these places. Uh, Reuters asked me to take some pictures. And so that was that was the beginning. I wow! Was just so that's like, your first stringer job was <laughs> Reuters in Sri Lanka. Exactly. And so you had an old FM two and probably twenty rolls of film. And uh, exactly, no, and maybe forty rolls. <laughs> forty rolls of film. And for those of you who don't know, with the Médecins Sans Frontières, that's Doctors Without Borders yes. in, in the in the states. That's how we refer to them. Um, and was how was because I had a little dance with MSF years ago after I'd left Cambodia and they were going to send, I was get, I went to Cambodia for somebody else, but then MSF in LA was like, Hey, can you go back and do such and such? But my, my experience with them was a little funky. Was there, was it a warm reception from their side or was what it? What year was it? You... Uh, 96. Oh, in 96. It was warm. I think in, in, uh, so this Damn was it. in 91, okay, 92. Okay. Yeah. So it was before that they were, they were, well, the doctors on the ground were amazing, were wonderful. And even the the head people in in uh, Colombo were also very welcoming. They're like, yeah, sure, great. You know, they were much welcoming. But then I'll have to say then as a professional photographer, when I went back in 97, mm -hmm. they were ice. They were cold. They're like, how, you know, they, they didn't welcome me at all, nor did the, the UN or UNHCR or the Red Cross, you know, anybody after. Because I went, I wasn't a graduate student. I I was, you know, a journalist, and they just gave me the cold shoulder. Oh, that's probably why. And I think they've got, they've had probably gotten burned, you yeah. know, through the that you know period of five or six years, and they're just like, we're not going to, yeah. It's a it's a touch and go type of thing. Yeah, I think it is, and I think the 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 country, the leader of the country project, is always a key ingredient, and then. There's the bureaucratic side of the of the big city organizations like LA that's sending teams into the field, and I that's who I was interfacing with, and I didn't know them, and they didn't know me, and it was just kind of a weird a weird thing. But so you basically went from studying these master's degrees, which had nothing to do with photography, into stringing in the field with a camera for Reuters in the middle of the Tamil Tiger, and 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 this was what was happening in Sri Lanka at that time. Well, it was, you know, it was a full-on war. I mean, the Tamil Tiger, there was a lot of splintered, you know, rebel groups, but the Tamil Tigers had pretty much started killing off all of those. And, um, yeah, there were, you know, bombings, random bombings, and there was, you know, there's troop movements, and, you know, I mean, it, there, it was an active war, yeah, for sure. And that was the first time you went, and then you went back again in 96, 97, but we're going to talk about that later, because that sure. was a, a whole adventure in itself. So, yeah, so after spending six months with these international uh, organizations, I was like, this is not for me, you know, conflict <laughs> resolution. I want to, like, sit everybody down and, like, discuss it and move on with life. It's like, yeah. but I loved being where history was being made right at that moment. And I was just, you know, I was doing photography that I loved. And I, and I was like, well, this is great. This is what I'm going to do. And so a, a humanitarian news journal in Geneva asked me from my work that I did in Switzerland, i uh, sorry, in Sri Lanka, like, would you go to East Timor for us? So I was there during Shanana Guzmao's trial. So it was right. So that was in 93. And then that, you know, but in between then was that uh, where I went back to Indiana, where I was born. Yes, Hoosiers. And I, and Two I, Hoosiers. Hoosiers here. <laughs> and um, I talked to Chip Murray at the Indianapolis Star, and I showed him my work because I was like, "This is I wanted. I want to become a photojournalist. This is what I want to do." I finally, I, you know, I finally was like, "This what, is it." What, what was the moment that you said that? Was it post in Sri Lanka? In Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka. Yeah. I was like. This is, well, one, it was addictive, but it was everything that I loved. I was like, his, I was being there where history was being made um, on the site, documenting what was happening. Um, and, and I think when you go into conflicts and from a, histor a historian, because my undergrad, I was a history major. It's like, it was so important to have that historical background, to understand all the parties to the conflict and understand what they've gone through, the, 
you know, like back up 40, 50, 100 years to really understand the evolution of a conflict. And that really helped, helps as a as That a seems like the perfect set of ingredients for photojournalism as a history major with a, you know, international exactly. studies degree on top of that, a master's degree on top. That's a very unique foundation for somebody going into that field. But the extent of your photography training when you start stringing for Reuters is, is your UC, my, my, UC my, Boulder. UC Boulder. I mean, it was fine art. Was Which like, is a party school, it was by like, the way. Right, it, was, um, it was photography 101. Um, I remember doing black and whites of like, you know, abandoned cars and, you know, and different things. Which is very popular now. And then, and then I was, um, you know, my brother at that time was living in Honduras. And then I would, you know, took pictures of, you know, in Roatan and in other other places in Honduras, and came back and and then and then I took it the next year. I took fine art printing, and I, but I just was I, the, the whole thing. I just but my and what was interesting, my history, my photography professor was took a historical perspective on photography, mm. and so I was hooked. So here I was learning about photography, not just in the actual mechanics of it, but I learned about the history, the evolution of photography, and then just you know watching the magic happening in the dark room and just falling in love with everything. So it was just kind of like, but it, you know, I was like, how can I make a living at this? You know, this isn't going to yeah. happen. So I never ask yourself that I question. know, right? <laughs> I put that aside. Yeah, that's so. always a deadly question. But Chip Murray said something, did something for you. He did. That he exposed yeah. you to something and then also maybe pulled some strings behind the scenes. Tell us about that because that's... Well, a- yeah, so the, I think the, 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 the cutoff date for the Eddie Adams workshop... Uh, which is... Which is a, uh, a weekend workshop in upstate New York, which was founded by Eddie Adams, who took the Pulitzer Prize winning photograph in 1968 of the execution of the Viet Cong in the streets of Saigon. Which you have a print of in which your Which I office. have a print of, yes. Um, that... Um, uh, he would get all of his, you know, Vietnam War correspondent, you know, buddies, and they put together this workshop, and it's a uh, hundred students, fifty professionals that have had less than two years' experience, and fifty students who were still in like photo school or photojournalism or fine art or whatever. You had to submit a portfolio. They choose you. It's free, and for four days, you and then you're assigned um, a top. Uh, director of photography and a top photojournalist well-established and you set up 10 teams of 10 and you have an assignment for the weekend and then you're you're being and you're showing work and you're talking so I was with Michelle Stevenson of Time magazine and Carol Guzzi of the Washington Post and both just amazing that individuals. is like power uh, for those of you out there in the audience who don't know who those people are look look them both up I mean Carol Guzzi's still shooting and still out she, there amazing she's an amazing photographer that is a power duo um, I went to Eddie Adams twice just for everyone to know I went when I worked for Eastman Kodak and I did not go as a participant I went as a van driver which is as sexy as you as it sounds <laughs> i was driving a team of 10 around and there's a lot of backstories which i'm not going to go into now but it was quite the experience but eddie launched and when i say eddie i mean the eddie adams workshop eddie launched a lot of people and it got a oh. lot of people noticed and it and it was almost like a back door into the industry it in takes a way. two years off of knocking on doors in new york city to with all the editors and you established, you had, there was like 11 o'clock club, 11 p.m. after oh, everything was done. Right. And you showed your portfolio. And so you had all these amazing photographers and, and editors looking at your work, giving you feedback. And it was just, you know, you're just like adrenaline. You're just like, wow. And That's right. There was no sleep. No that, sleep. That no sleep. And then it let alone, and then a little bit of partying. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little bit. That was, uh, you know, you're being kind. There were some shenanigans. And so then I would, I went back then. I had such a great time. I went back on, on the black team like for four or five years after that. And the black team is the team that helps organize the rest of the teams. Right. And they're basically the grunt work, like mowing the grass, getting things ready also for the this weekend. <laughs> to- and so the, just so people know, Eddie Adams, like as Monique said, it's on a, it's on a farm in upstate New York. Yeah. And it's quite a, it's a beautiful compound of buildings. And there's a theater where at night, the photographers who've been come in, who've been invited in as instructors and participants show their work. And I've, I saw some of the best presentations I've ever seen in my life in photography at the Eddie Adams workshop, even oh, yeah. though I was miserable and sleep deprived as a van driver. But it just was a memorable thing, and it's so still, Gordon still going. Gordon Parks was there when I was there, wow. and Carl Maiden, and you know all these legends too. And then to hear them speak and to tell their stories, 
um, was, is just phenomenal. And so yeah. from that, you had your two team leaders, Michelle Stevenson, and you badgered her. I badgered her for, I said, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get published in time. She's like, okay, be in the right place at the right time. And I will have, I have no doubt that we'll publish you one day. And so I did some stringing for AFP in, in Honduras for the elections. Which is Agence France Press. Agence France Press. And then I was following the news, and I was like, I'm either going to go to Haiti or Mexico for elections. And I was in Miami, and I saw in the Miami Herald um, this graph, this bar graph, like 100, 350, 1,500 Balsettos, um boat refugees leaving Cuba. And I'm like, this is a story. This is what I'm going to forget Haiti, forget Mexican or like the elections in Mexico. And I talked my way on with the um, Hermanos Arecate, which is Brothers to the Rescue, um, this Cuban organ- Cuban-American organization that would just drop supplies down off of their little Cessna planes, basically. And um, I talked my way, and I, I, call, I call Michelle, and I said... I'm going to Cuba. I think you're going to... And she's like, oh, my God, you have shots of aerial shots of these little boats in the middle of the, you know, the straits, <laughs> the Florida straits. I'm like, yes. She's like, send the film. And so I had... I FedEx... This is back in the film, you know. This yeah. is in Shooting 1994. Shooting film and film. Yeah. And um, I didn't... I said, I'm not, I'm not going to wait. She's like, listen, we'll give you $1,000, put you on a retainer. Um, whatever you shoot in Cuba, you know... Uh, send it directly to us. So you had to like find people in Havana to like actually carry the film back to New York, which was a whole different. Yeah, you know. I want to I want to touch on that briefly before we move on to the rest of the story. But what Monique's talking about, and I, maybe I've mentioned this before on a podcast or a video or something, but at the time, if she's on assignment in in Cuba and she's working, the only way to get that film out, there was no FedEx. The only way to get the film out was to physically go to the airport, find someone who's on a flight to Miami or New York. A stranger approach them and say, hey, uh, you you don't know me, but will you carry this bag of film and somebody will meet you at the airport when you get off the plane? And people did it. And they did it. It's amazing. (laughs) I know. Now it's all, it's totally such a different beast. Oh, there's no now. way. You, nobody first of all, nobody you, would do it now. No, nobody would. Know, if you even showed up at the airport and tried, you'd get arrested or tased <laughs> or something. So no, it was a completely different era. I absolutely love that. That's what the logistics were at the time. I think there's something romantic about the whole thing. Yeah. And so tell us what happens with the with Well, the so they run a double page spread. Time so my, does. Time does of the little boat in the dire straits. And there, and then the next week I get a half a page of a, of a Balsetto jumping off the land onto this little raft, you know, basically to his, most likely to his death. And yeah, and I then I was like, and then with that in my portfolio, that that just sent me off. It just so then I had the next ten years of trying, running around, trying to find. I would try to find. She, Michelle Seymour helped me with try to find a an agency, but I was kind of at that kind of end part with when those photo agencies were kind of like at the our last yeah the last leg. Hurrah. And I was based at in Paris at the time, and then so yeah, so it was kind of like a. It didn't, yeah, I, it was basically at the end of the day, you had to, you still had to pitch your own story, and they usually would say no, and so you're just like, I'm passionate about this, I'm going to do it. And so since I had done my work in um, in Sri Lanka, I knew Sri Lanka, I had a pass from the Tamil Tigers. I was like, I'm going to go back, and I want to do a story on the female Tamil Tigers. And the Tamils are the rebel, gr- the main rebel group the in main, Sri Lanka. Yes. And were time. they in? Was it like the FARC in Colombia, where they had a section of the country that was theirs that was under Tamil and, control? Yes. And there was a front line where they were battling yes. with the government troops. Yes. And you had to get past that front line. Yes. And so I approached again. I approached as a PhD student. Which Smart. Was not, which was not true. <laughs> but, and then when I got to the other side, but that's when I got the cold shoulder from the, from the UN and Red Cross. And they're like, how did you get over the line? And I was like, well, I was here before and I have this thing. But then I sat almost for 24 hours in um, the Tamil Tiger office. I was like, I'm not going to leave. I was like, you're getting no Western press. I'm not leaving. So basically at three o'clock in the morning, they're like, okay, she's not going to leave. <laughs> what are we going to do with her? And I go on this screaming, you know, Jeep jungle drive for a couple hours to a base to where the fem- where there was one camp of the female tigers, and they gave me 24 hours with them. And I got these photos. And, and yeah, and so then it was another scoop, and I was able, and at, 
that time. And so um, and, then Asia, you... and Time Magazine ran those and Asia Week Asia and a Week. few others. How did you get Asia. out? I, well, yeah. <laughs> so in, at that time, you know, it was a, a low photo pack and there was like a compartment that you could put the, your film, because I was still shooting, you know, a film, I, I stuck it in the back of my, and I just had my pack and I always carried a yo-yo. So crossing, you know, I'd always do my yo-yo. A distraction. A distraction. So you're in your pack, you had like a secret compartment. Yeah. With yeah, film. With film. And then was it danger from the government side of like getting shot, trying to come back to that no, side? No, not shot, but kind of like you just kind of appear and they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who are you? You know, and they basically, I walked like the last mile to go back. They're like, we're, this is where, this is where we end. And now you got to walk. And I'm like, okay, is God, this that's mind? Gotta be. Yeah, yeah. That's was, my first thought is a mind. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. So I just, I stayed on a path. Let's Smart. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't, stray. <laughs> don't, don't stray off a path. And the yo-yo, I've never heard that, but it's such a good thing. It is such a good thing. And I, I, I think I probably still have it somewhere. Um, it's probably all tangled up. But it was like, so it's like conversation. It's like, you know, you have to be that fly on the wall and you don't, you don't, you know, take it out. And I've, I've had, um, you know, amazing experiences. But, but there was a point where then after like, almost 10 years where you're going runner and then not getting anywhere, like not really solidify, not really finding a good agency or them not getting you assignments and you get worn out. You know, I did a lot of work for the Christian science monitor, which was great. And they let me do some writing. Um, and then I, I realized that, um, I was, you know, I know I think it was in, it was in the Nuba mountains in Sudan where I was like, okay, Nobody wants this story, and I've, you know, I've gotten these things and these images, and I was like, I think I need to switch gears. So I went back to New York City. I applied to the film school at NYU, a summer program, intensive filmmaking course. And um, because I gave myself three years in Paris, like I'm either going to break into the French media mafia or I'm not, or I'm leaving. I got to, I got to ch- turn and the ex- page. And explain that because the the French media mafia is a very specific thing to that region. And coming from, you're a Swiss American, but you're still American. Still American. No, yeah. like when I'm in Europe, I'm American. When I'm in America, I'm European. Yeah. It's a very funny situation. And then that same with my photography. In the photojournalist world, I'm an artist. In the art world, I'm a photojournalist. Yeah. So like hard. I hate it when people want to pigeonhole you. It's yeah. just like Well, and the French the French media mafia, you know, you have American in your title and it's a major strike. And like it's, to get... Yeah, even with, you know, double page spread from time. I mean, they'll look they'll, you know, they'll they'll be they're courteous or whatever they're interested but then they're not gonna I got no assignment but then I found out like through SIPA and somebody else had some work that I did of a of a royal wedding in Jodhpur and it just showed up in the Figaro and I'm like I didn't know that you know who got how did they get my work you know Anyway, it's, yeah, crazy. And I just... So, so but, t- 10 so years this, of hustle. So 10 years of hustle. I, I go to New, NYU. It's, it's, it was a five or six week course over the summer. I, um, I cat sat from somebody who had a, an apartment on the Lower East Side. And I fell in, back in love with why I picked up the camera in the first place. So it was, it was old Aeroflex. You learned how to edit on an old steam back. You had a battery pack. You're going around. You had to produce five short films in that time, you know, three-minute films, but like old school. And my last film was called No Beginning, No End. And it was very artsy and poetic. And I had, I just, I loved it. And I, I go back to Paris, and I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? And I, you know, and at that time, I um, Stanley Green uh, was a great friend and mentor and, and, and a wonderful person. Um, uh, and you know, I was talking to him, and he's just like, well, you know, maybe you should, you know, whatever. He was giving me advice, and then I I woke up because um, it was really on my mind. I really had to make a decision because I wasn't making money and I was, you know, it's yeah. feast and famine sure. for 10 years. So um, I had a dream. <laughs> Sounds uh-huh. so funny. I had a dream. And I was like, what is the largest circle known, geographical circle known to man? It was the equator. And I was like, boom, this is what I'm going to do. I packed everything up. Uh, from Paris, sent it back to my parents' farm in Indiana, and I went to the Institut Géographique National, which is like the equivalent of National Geographic in Paris, and bought like 
all the topographical maps around the equator. Around the ha- entire planet. Around the entire planet. And it was, it's usually it's from, from the equator to like five degrees. So I cut off everything. I only wanted one degree north and one degree south. I was like, this is going to be my red thread, my zone. And I'm just going to, and this was in 2000. I'm going to document at the turn of the millennium just life around the earth's underbelly. But back up a little, back up yeah. one second. Okay. Because there's a lot there. During the 10 years of hustle, yeah. you, there is not like a country, a region, a place in the world where you don't have a story from. Yeah, I have a few. <laughs> I yeah. mean, whether it's Chile or Honduras or driving from wherever, Argentina to Alaska, wherever, you know, all across Africa, um, lived in Thailand, lived in the Congo, which we're going to get to in a bit. But underneath the equator story, which became Latitude Zero, which is your book. book yep. Forward by Paul Thoreau, correct? Yes. Which is a whole nother thing that I can't even imagine. And I have a little Paul Thoreau story that I think is kind of funny. But what's interesting to me is the way you came to photography was not, gee, these cameras are really cool. I love the techie side. This is great. There was an underlying theme from the beginning about putting a human face on a, on a story about, um, you know, the whatever geopolitical thing that you were working on. The equator came from a circle, came from a circle, came from this little art film that I did from NYU, the last one called No Beginning, No End. And it just was so poetic. And I was like, I don't want an editor anymore saying, I want this image or that image. I, you know, I was like, I just want to document life with a capital L around the center of the world at this like historical turning point, you know, 2000, you know, that was that you know, yeah. just, just like Y2K, we're all going to die. Y2K, right? Everybody was going to die. Everybody was like, oh, <laughs> ding dong. Um, and so, and I, so I left, I had, um, a couple thousand dollars in my pocket. I had, it was basically a life with no keys. I had no bills. I had no no responsibility. I had no apartment rent. I had no, you know, I had no bills, nothing. And I used a lot of my free air miles and I and I started in Brazil and, and then I just was chasing the sun. I was just working my way westward. And I just, I kept going. And I would, I, after, South, after South America section was done, I regrouped, tried to get a little more money, kind of, you know. And so I was freelancing along the way. And, and in Colombia, I stayed six months because um, I was getting a lot of work. Every, it was a hot, it was like Plan Colombia was there yeah, yeah. and everybody wanted to know what the FARC was doing. And so it kind of dictated to like, if I was getting work, I would stay, but I would only focus, I was shooting in black and white. Um, and you were shooting with a Rolleiflex? I was shooting six? with a, a Rolleiflex and my Nikon gear and, um, but not the, not digital and, and a Leica. I'm and gonna... how like logistically challenging was traveling with all that film and. It was hard. So you always had to have a base. And then you worked out from there, and then you would just go off with a backpack or something, you know. And I, and I started developing it during the time, like in Colombia, through your friend Scott. Oh, yeah, Scott He Dalton. had somebody <laughs> who developed, and he ruined my film with the fart. No way. I was so upset. I was like, you got to be kidding. I was like, you did that on purpose. <laughs> I was like, that guy did that on purpose. He didn't want that out. But no, I'm kidding. Um, uh so then I decided, okay, I'm just going to, I'm not going to develop any of that film if okay. I wasn't on assignment and I, and, and just keep it. And then when I w- went back to New York or wherever, like after South America, I went to a friend's place in, in Mexico city and developed the film there and then, um, and then work on, and then store it, you know, somewhere Even, else. The, even that. Oh, even then lo- it was crazy. And everybody's like, it was just kind of still, this is, you know, I mean, digital film cameras were coming out, but they were so heavy and, yeah. you know, I did get a digital camera, but not for this, not this, that was after Latitude Zero, after I'd finished that, but yeah. But I loved the medium format and my friend, my photographer friend in Mexico, he gave me his Rolly and he's like, you're going to fall in love with this. Yeah. And I did. And it's, as we were talking before, I mean, it's a whole different dynamic dealing with people. You can just sit there and relax and it's on your lap and you can have a conversation. It's not like in your face with the camera. And, um, but it's, it's the thing with, with photography for me, it was all, it's like, um, five, 10% technique and 90% soul. I mean, and, and I think I do that with everything I'm self-taught pretty much with with photography and with my art whether it's the welding or whatever it's it's i think i think you you have to have that passion you got to have that and and you have to you want to be and and the curiosity about wanting to hear people's story 
yeah. and, and, and having the patience to be there. Maybe it might take one day, one week, one month, but having the patience to just sit it out and be there. And so, yeah, and it's hard. Like you can't do that if you have a lot of bills waiting for you to be paid. So it was definitely a unique, unique part of my life. I think the C word, I think curiosity is definitely at the top of the list for anybody yeah. who's like you that's out in the world. And There's compassion. Who wanted to know. Compassion is another one. Yeah. But I also think too for you, they're, they're the underlying... Again, this is not a photographic, it, to me, it's not a photographic message. It's, yeah. a, it's an underlying message, and you're using photography to explain that underlying message. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there's plenty of photographers who are coming from a, just a different angle where it's much more about the individual, like the photo side. It's weird. And I think yeah. I always, people are probably sick of hearing me say this, but I think photography today is better as a small part of a larger conversation than the conversation itself, because photography has become so ubiquitous and the deluge, a great deluge of imagery that we can't keep up with. Yeah. And so when you're, even if you're putting elite style imagery in front of people, getting that attention for people to focus on just the technical aspects of the photography, like, Oh, that's great composition or great light. It's difficult. Well, I know you're talking because of the generation of yeah. I kids think I just think or... the world's changed, yeah. you know, and I think the att- attention span of all ages has changed. And I think back when we started, because you had to shoot film and the process was so slow, yeah. that getting attention for elite photography was um, was more possible than it is today. Because today people are just inundated all the time. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I'm not as interested really in the photography anymore. I'm interested in what the underlying story is, and if the people are using photography to tell that story, I'm all in. I'm interested. Right. But I don't necessarily look at it like I used to look at the old French photo magazine in 1992 where I'd pour over those images and I was just mesmerized by like, how do I make images like that? The story was kind of lost in the genius of the photographer. And I think now I'm more flipped. And I think for you, you started with the foundational element. And I think that's, that's what allowed you to make it through the 10 years of hustle and adapt and evolve and keep going because you... The curiosity and the idea that these stories are out there and you want to tell these stories. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so where, let's see, you're 10 years of hustle, you've gone to the film school, and now you're starting on the equator, you've traveled around. How how many years on that project? It took three years um, and 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 with the life no keys. So I did, um, uh, I did, uh, so... Yeah, three years, but then I had to go back because um, I had the story. Because of East Timor's situation, 10 years later, I couldn't go into Indonesia. And the equator in Asia is Indonesian archipelago. Is it? <laughs> so I had to get in. And so that was really difficult to... And um, why couldn't you get in? So I was there. I went one time as a Swiss national and one time as an American national. And the second time I went back, I was dating an Australian guy. Um, and I went back to Australia, and they found out that I had been there in East Timor. There's a huge Timorese uh, refugee population in, in Australia. And the, the resistance or whatever you want to call them um, were like, you got to go back. And then there was this um, Australian filmmaker. He did Chile Astiquando and all these different ones. So he seemed legit. And I'm like, and he was going to go with his five-year-old son. And, um, and he was going to go back and recreate. He just wanted me to go and take stills of, you know, the dress, the culture, the landscape, the house. Because he was going to recreate East Timor in Australia and do a feature oh, film. Oh, okay. Got it. And he had ulterior motives, and I didn't know that. And and so basically, to make a very long story short, he was kicked out, and I was kind of like slapped on the wrist saying, be careful who you travel with, but I had to leave. And so I, we had to sign a, a document in Bahasa Indonesian, and I'm like, I don't – and in English, I'm like, I don't know what I'm signing. I'm forced to being signed this, and – um and so 10 years later, I arrive in Denpasar, and I'm in the computer, oh. and they're like, sorry. So I couldn't even go to Singapore. I couldn't go. They sent me back to Guam on the flight, the next flight back to Guam. And I was like, listen, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And yeah, I could not, I, I could not get in. And so I, um, I was like, so I, I lost some time. I went to Asia um, because of the Timorese photos that I had. Um, uh, for, well, no, wait, 
So no, at that time I was like, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to go on to Africa. So I can't, I'm just going to yeah, put, put Asia part put on, on the hold. Back burner. And Maldives was too crazy expensive at the time to get to. I was like, cause it's the Southern part of the archipelago. And I was like, okay, I'm going to base myself in Nairobi and start on the Eastern part of Africa of the equator. And, um, so yeah, so like after that was done, I went, I was back in DC. I went to the Indonesian embassy and basically they were very nice, but they're like, you signed a, a thing saying that oh. you were a danger to the state and you will always be on the blacklist. Who knew that the Timorese computer system was so high tech? It wasn't the Timorese. It was the internet. Never underestimate any country's intelligence. Wow. Uh, security. I'm impressed. Uh, yeah. I was like, wow. And so, but basically, but this, get this. So through my father's like business contacts, because they was, was in, um, living in Hong Kong at the time in Asia, he contacted a man who had a daughter in San Francisco who my dad had helped. He's like, well, as a repay, let me oh. help. And he was based in Jakarta. So basically he gave the Ministry of Defense a hundred bucks and say, just let her have a 30-day visa. She will be good. She won't do... <laughs> She's not going to go to Aceh. She's not going to cover anything. And um, I was like, no, it's more than a, de a one degree. I'm not going to cover it. And so, yeah, and that was, and I was able. And so they're like, go to the embassy in Singapore, slip the guy, the 50 guy, he'll get a stamp. When you get into the, um, at, in Jakarta, they will, you know, whatever. And it worked. Unbelievable. Jesus. I don't, you know, I don't know how it worked. I don't, and to this day, my husband's so pissed off because he's like, I want to go to Indonesia and you can't. And you're like, yeah, I think I ruined that for us. I and know. so you're still on the, probably. On the shit I've list. never tried. I've never tried to go back, but probably, I probably am. I got banned from a Las Vegas hotel once and, <laughs> um, and I can, I got back in late years later. So their computer system sucks. <laughs> I was not still in the system. Because I even said, I said, what, what? Timor is independent now, you know, and th they did not like that. They're like, <laughs> yeah, sorry, you're back going back to Guam. But anyways, yeah, so I can't remember. What was the so train of thought? three so, years on the project. So three years on the project. How and did then, you know when you were done? Well, geographically, I had covered everything except the Maldives. Um, so in 2003, then I went back to, I did the Indonesian for the 30 days. And then, um, and then I was able to go get into the Maldives for a week. Um, so yeah, so it was kind of frustrating. I mean, you would have liked, I would have liked to have done, but it was done. Yeah. And so when you, let's take the Maldives, for example. So you've got a small location, but difficult to get from island to island, right? So, and you have a short amount of time. Yeah. So what does a typical day look like on that project? Is it, do you have a shot list when you fly in, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants when you get there? Seat of my pants. I do a little research, kind of a little, and I, I have my top, my maps and different symbols on the map. I'm like, that looks like an interesting, you know, and then I do a little research and be like, well, I'd like to, there's a mine here. I'd like to cover this bauxite mine, or there's, a, you know, whatever was happening at the time. And so in the Maldives, um, and, I, and luckily I had that geographic framework otherwise you'd be all over the map like yeah. oh my god i can go in here and do this and that um and i only strayed out of the one degree north and south in brazil and in somalia because of either security situation or geographic so like in brazil i went down the amazon river and up and so going down you go you straight out yeah, straight out but yeah and in somalia it was just because it's somalia and yeah, because I could only, I flew a cot flight into Mogadishu from Nairobi, and I got on uh, with the British American Tobacco on a cigarette run to like 100 kilometers south, but I couldn't go south. Like, I went all the way on the Kenyan border. I was going to go across into Somalia, and they're like, no, yeah, you're, no you'll way. die. You'll die. Don't do that. And even then, at the border, at that refugee, it was, I think it's called Leboy. Um, there were, you know, Syrian dentists and you know, like all these really strange, not Kenyan people there. Um, there was like in yeah. Ras Kamboni hmm. where, where that was like the hub of, of, you know, of a lot of the militant, you know, Islamists. You just said I got a cot flight from Nairobi <laughs> to Mogadishu and... Um, to explain what cot is. So cot is a mild hallucinogenic that the Somalians and other people in that kind of horn of Africa are addicted to. Um, you chew it, 
it's caught, it's a leaf. It's like a little bit of speed. It's, it's, it's like, yeah, it's a little bit less. So like you basically, if you're in Mogadishu, you cannot have an interview after maybe 11 o'clock in the morning or one o'clock because then you have people who are just completely stoned and they think that they're, you know, Invincible. 20 feet tall. And yeah, you, you just, there's no cognition going on. So. And then also you said that you had also gotten in on a British tobacco flight into and so when you well it wasn't their flight it was a caught flight but i i had met a the security officer of bat in nairobi through years before in 1999 and i kept up the contact and he's like oh well you you'll need security and so when i was there in mogadishu so i stayed at a hotel and he's like well because I was like, well, I need to get as close as I can to the equator, and I'd like to see. And they're and they, they um, they're like, well, we're doing a cigarette run. We're going to, you know, distribute some cigarettes. I'm like, this sounds cool. <laughs> so so I like, go down I there. Cigarettes. And then at the same time, through other various contacts that I had made in Nairobi, there was a, an NGO in Merca that I wanted to interview, and I had some things to give to people, some relatives from Nairobi, Somalians. They said, well, if you're, can you please go to Merca? If you get there, you know, can you give? And so that's what I did. And there was a, a Swiss lady who had worked at a, at a hospital there for her own NGO, and I was like, oh, it should be really cool to interview and to, to, to document her work. Um, um, thinking about that guy in Gabon, who was that guy, the, the doctor... Um, uh, Schweitzer. Schweitzer. Yeah. So I was like, well, maybe she would. She's like the Eastern version of the Schweitzer, you know. Yeah. And um, so yeah, it's my time. It's like a whole other. Just interview. this, I was going to say. But the thing is, is that basically, I get these two Moroccan guys who are shooting for Abu Dhabi TV comes come there, and they're like, "What are you doing here?" And I'm like, "Wow, what are you guys just hanging? Just hanging." And um, and I had my Pakistani pajamas. They're like, "Just act like." They're like, "Well, we're gonna go interview like the ISIS equivalent that's hanging out here." And I'm like, "They're just act like you're, you know, you can't speak, you can't hear, you know, just come with us, and we just be quiet." And I'm like, "Okay, well," and then it was like that sixth sense kicks in as like, you know, I'm, I, th- I think I need to go back with these guys. Yeah. You know, I was like, this is, you know, you know, I'm pushing my luck. I'm, I'm pushing my luck. And that Swiss lady was assassinated the next day and I was on my Swiss passport. So there was a lot of controversy. Like, did they find out? Did they, you know, I didn't do anything bad. I was just taking, you know, pictures of. Wow. Know. Yeah, it was crazy. So then I, I'm back and um, yeah. Just the, just your East Africa experience. I mean, what you just went over in the last five minutes is so atypical, which is, again, why we're doing an audio podcast right now and not video, because uh, there's just so (laughs) much there that is outside the norms of what would be considered like a normal life. But this is the life that you... You know, to, to, you had to do. You're doing the. You, and did you go to literally every single country on the equator? Every single one. Which even is how many? Sa- even Satomi and Principe. I think it's 13, 14. 13 or 14 countries. And then, so now you're done. You're done shooting. Yeah. Where's all the film at this point? So all the film was in, in New York, um, in New York City. So I did a lot of couch surfing in New York at that time. So I'm finished. Um, in 2003, I was like, I need to develop all this. I need to find a publisher, you know. And so it took me from 2003 to 2010 to find a publisher. I was going to say, you would So think- I went through three different book maquettes, you know, book things. And, like, different people were interested, and then they would say it, and then, like, no, black and white, and it's too poetic, it's too, too artsy, or it's not, like, Madonna naked on the equator, or dogs, or, you know, yeah. it was, it was a hard sell, you know, at that time. And I, and I knew that, and, and, you know, I was like, I didn't want to do it, that my, I, my, I wanted to do it in black and white because I focus better on our focus. It's my, it's, it's a, it's a, it's gritty and it's soulful and you're, you're, you have a different, I have a different mentality when I'm shooting in color or in black and white, which is funny. I mean, it may be, but maybe that's old school. I don't know. But the interesting thing to me is you would think that when the principal photography is over, that the heavy lifting is done and it's not. And in fact, it took you longer to find a publisher than it did for you to to travel around the entire uh, equator of the earth getting the imagery. And I think that that's a lesson for everybody out here is that this publishing thing is not 
easy at all, mm-hmm. especially when you're when you're not conforming to what is yeah. economically most viable to the to the publisher. So, yeah. and I and almost all the pu- publishers loved the work, loved it, and they're like, we just it's not a sell for us. You can't do it. And I understood that. And all my all the, my friends and colleagues were like, you got to go meet Martin in Amsterdam, you know, he still has a heart for, you know, black and white politics, you know, projects. And, um, and within his, in, he, that was in 2008. He's like, I want to publish this. This is great. And what I, and basically when I went through, first of all, I started with my Mexican friend who had a contact in Barcelona with these designers and we did a beautiful book and it was more of stream of consciousness it was the idea was I wanted these images to be a flow a continuum there was there's no beginning or end to a circle right so I wanted it to have that idea and it didn't work it was big and bulky and um and then I got hooked up with another designer in Vermont and he had a lot of contacts and he had us like design firm in Chicago and did this and I was just like ew I was like this is not what I it was more like it was like academic and Martin looked at those things and he's like ew he's like he's like if you didn't show me so what I had done is so then when I was in New York so I went through all my contacts I xeroxed all of them I cut out every image you know that tiny little image oh you went through your contact sheets I went through my contact sheets and I cut out all the ones all the images that I wanted and I put two books together so when you finish one book you flip it over and another book starts and I laid it out like like I would you know what how I'd want it yeah and he's like that's what sold it he's like that is from your heart that is from your soul this is what I want to publish and it makes sense the and flip, it makes sense yeah and the, the, book, flip the book, book that yeah. never ends then the book that never ends you just keep and you can pick it up and look at it anywhere and yeah. it's not a big you know and he, you know, had Tuan as a designer. He worked with two designers, and Tuan it just worked the rhythmic magic, editing magic. Tuan is, and I don't, I don't think I, I've I would, ever I met him probably, in person. He's universally beloved. Yeah, yeah, and he is, and it's, it's a wife husband team, and they're great. They're yeah. awesome, and he did a beautiful job. And um, and it was their their printer in Germany. It's like because it was a two book thing. It would be it would have been too expensive to publish in Germany, but I was um, based in Bangkok at that time, and I was like, "Well, of course, I like, because that's you know that's one how... of the five hundred places that you've been based <laughs> in your life." And I was like, "There's published you know printers in China," and so you know Martin was like, oh, "I'm not sure about that," and so but we did we ended up going and to to and flown, and I was like pregnant at the time. I was like eight months pregnant, we fly into Shenzhen, and I'm, like, getting, like, you know, I'm I like, might have my baby in I China. I might have my baby in Shenzhen. And, um, and uh, yeah, and they did it, and they knocked it out. And so my son and book came out. They call my, they're my twins at the same time. And then I did a, a TED Talk in Hong Kong. I, you know, I talked at the Geographical Society, the Explorers Club in New York. And so there was a lot of great things, but, yeah, it was, it was fun. So one of the things that, that's really interesting to me is Paul Thoreau was involved, and he wrote a forward or an introduction to, to the So, book. yeah, he wrote the first forward, and then I had the idea of doing the two books in one. And I was like, and I recontacted. I was like, could you write another forward? Oh. He's, he's like, don't push it. <laughs> <laughs> and it but he was really – so I met him on the Ecuadorian-Colombian border. He was wearing a Hawaiian shirt and this crazy hat. I was like, who is this gringo? Like, what the heck is he doing here? Yeah. You know, I had just come across a Colombian and – um, the paramilitary group, you know, had like um, were out on exercises, and the FARC had blown up the pipeline there. You know, so I was like dirty and exhausted, and I didn't want to talk to anybody, and I was just like, and you run into up, Paul Thoreau, and I run into Paul Thoreau, and I didn't know that. So he, so we started talking. He seemed pretty, you know. After talking, I realized he wasn't just, you know, a, a green, tourist, a tourist, yeah, and. Um, and uh, and at the end, and he and he's like, "What's your name?" I'm like, "Munichan." I'm like, "And you?" He's like, "Paul Throne." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I'm like, like, "Can you repeat like, that?" The Patagonia Express and all these. I was like, "That's so cool," you know. <laughs> and um, and he was super. And he has a frigate bird tattooed to his hand. And he's like, "Listen, when you, your next stop is the Pacific," and he wrote "Fresh Air Fiend," the kayaking mm-hmm. all around the Pacific. And he's like, "If you need help." You know, he's in between Cape Cod and Hawaii. He's like, you know, if you stop through Hawaii, you know. I'm like, okay, be careful yeah. what you ask for. I, I, I will show up. I will show up. Unfortunately, he wasn't there when I was going to Christmas Island. But um, we stayed in touch, and he wrote that Dark Star Safari, his mm-hmm. journey from Cairo to Cape Town. He's like, and I get this email, random emails. He's like, 
hey, Equatorial Gypsy, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm based in Kinshasa now. He's like, do you have any photos in Uganda on the equator? You know, I want to write, I want to try to use one of your photos for the, for the book, um, for my book, Dark Star Safari. I was like, oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. And, um, and then in the end, they, the, the publisher didn't go with it, but that wasn't, but we got read back touch base again. And he, and then he totally agrees. Like, yeah, I'll write another forward. And so it was great. It was awesome. So I was in, I was on an Island 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and I'm trying to get this image and I'm in this cove and I'm waiting and I'm walking back and forth in the beach. And I look over and I'm walking past a guy who's sitting on a folding beach chair in the surf. So the water's coming up to like his knees as he's sitting and he has a yellow legal pad and a pen and he's (laughs) writing, but he's writing like page after page after page, Hawaiian shirt sitting. And I'm just walking back and forth in front of him over this course of time waiting. And I looked at him and I kept looking at him and I was like, God, that almost looks like Paul Thoreau, but there's no way that that's Paul Thoreau. And so I'm just having this conversation in my head as I pass him like 20 times back and forth. I get my shot, I leave, and I'm telling a buddy of mine who lives on the same island in that same area. I was like, yeah, I, I swear to God, this guy looked like Paul Thoreau. He's like, you idiot, that is Paul Thoreau. He lives right up the, right up the hillside. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, I can't imagine, like, I, I think if you had not met him on the border in that situation to reach out at a later date, cold call, like, no you, way. You'd never, you probably never would have gotten near yeah, him. No. And so that is just so fortuitous that you... Synchronicity. Yeah. It, yeah. That's fantastic. And so you get the book out. The book's printed. How many copies did you print? Uh, I think they printed 2,500, 3,000. Okay, which t- these days would be a, a big run. Yeah. It's a big yeah. run. And I still, I think I have 1,000 copies. I have 500 here and 500 still. So like 1,000 wow. sold. Okay. Um, there wasn't much, pr- you know, so like, so marketing, it, when it, marketing, it came out like I had the foreign press co- uh, club in Bangkok and the Swiss embassy did a night, did nice things in Bangkok. Cause that's where I was. Um, yeah, but, um, you know, and then there was, you know, the Paris, Le Mois de Paris, uh, Photo in Paris. Um, and then there was a few things, something in Amsterdam, but it was all low. It was not, it was hard. It, it's been hard to, to sell. So, But tell me why, I mean, I have my I own mean, reasons. Even, even, you know, I, it won the award. The German edition won the award in Germany, this, you know, prestigious award. It won the silver award. Um, and... Um, and uh, the PDN, it won, yeah. you know, it won an award. Well, it hadn't been published, so they reneged on the first prize for the book. But then they gave me the first prize for like a photojournalist for photojournalism uh, images that were from the book. Wow. So yeah. But why? Why was the book such a thing for you? It's, I mean, why the book's a thing for all of us? But why, yeah. when you're in the back of your head as you're traveling around the equator, before you started that project, in your mind, did you say? This is going to be a book. Well, yeah, no, I wanted to do a book. I, I wanted to do, because I was tired, like the 10-year hustle, shuffle, I needed to slow down, and I wanted to do something from my heart, from, you know, and I've always been, a, you know, an adventurer and a voyager, and, you know, and it combined everything together. I was like, oh, my God, uh, Somalia, Congo, Colombia are on the equator. These are countries that I hadn't been to the 10 years before and I was like I could do this slow down you know like yeah. not fast pace and really take my time if I wanted to or just hang out if I wanted to because I had no bills you know except my immediate expenses and so um it was yeah it was just it was something in my mind and then it's the, also in my mind to do a trilogy so first they're like you know you know the Tropic of Cancer Tropic of Capricorn that was like the initial idea and then now it's morphed into something else and it you know now it's like more than 10 years later after it's been published I'm like okay well I've had a son and I've been been a wife and a mother and um I'm you know I've got involved in other artistic endeavors um, but that book and those yeah. copies even the ones that haven't sold there's yeah. a permanence there's a it's, there's a it's, permanence it's, tes- yeah. it's a testament a testimony and a permanent record of the world the equator at that time yeah and that's very different from the temporal kind of existence that we often have today, where even if something is brilliantly done, it can have a super short life cycle, a two-day life cycle. Totally. But, you know, even it goes viral, and two days later, people are, like, looking for the next viral yeah. thing. Whereas this book is like a – it's a haunting of 
that part of your life, that time frame, and that history. And those books could end up in libraries. Those books can end up in collections. Just, and the, those yeah. books are going to be around when you and I are dust. Totally. And there's something interesting about that. Permanent, and, yeah. 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 Where's, these... where's all the film and all that stuff now? In that closet. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. At least it's nice and cool in the basement. Yeah, no, it's, this is like the perfect storage area. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you've, um, you had your son. Yeah. Who's amazing. We had a good, nice, long conversation with him last night. Well, hopefully, night. what I hope for him is that, you know, he'll get the bug and maybe he will redo my journey in his own way and go on the equator and document it in his, or in whatever way, shape or form. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, like, that to, would be great. Yeah. A couple, 20 years from now, exactly. he goes back out and, and yeah. hammers it out. So you're a mom, you have a son, you're, you've moved from Bangkok, um, you've, you're in, you've lived in Congo for a long time, in Kinshasa. In Kinshasa, and so where I met my husband, a Belgian, um, who I met on in 2000, early 2001, too, where I was in the Congo for the equator trip, and where I met him. Um, but I'm like, okay, yeah, he's cool, nice, wonderful, cute, good, you know, like, sexy, and like, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. You're like, I think I want to move to the Congo. I know, I'm like, Wow. But I was like, you have a lot of, you know, personal light issues that he had to deal with. And um, and uh, we, and I was like, I'm, I'm on a mission. And I was just in the beginning. It was I was just had started. I had only done South America. And I was still, I still needed to do Western part of Africa, you know. So, um, and then, but we kept in touch. And so we had this incredible romance for six or seven years. And I'm like, I do love this guy. I was like, this is it. I was like, because it's like, do I want to continue this fast pace or just like, or no, do I want to turn the page? And yeah, and I, and I finally was like, yeah, I had, again, I had a dream and we were like um, feeding each other applesauce. You know, he's 11 years my senior and I'm like throwing applesauce like with a spoon into his mouth and we were like laughing hysterically. And I was like, Oh my, I'm gonna spend I don't rest. know what that means. I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this man. And so, and then I, yeah, we got married. I was like, and within two, three months, we got married in the Bronx in um, the Botanical Gardens. I mean, um, this, you're the only person I know who's lived in the Congo. And as an American, when you hear the word Congo, you ha- I just have, you know, the, the, what I envision in my mind, which is probably completely inaccurate. But it's not the common thing that you hear people like, oh, yeah, I live in Kinshasa. What what was that like? Well, I mean, I was also not actively looking for stories, but I, w- I would have fed a lot of people's stories because there was a lot going on. Um, I did do a, a few things, um, but it's like, um, so because of my son, I had to stay in Kinshasa where my husband was a, a directed, managed different plantation. So he was always out in the interior, which I had been to before. But so I was stuck. I was confined in Kinshasa. But so it's like, you know, my son's growing up with, you know, police and armed people running around the streets. And it's, you know, you can't go walking. You know, there's no, he didn't learn to ride a bike until he was, you know, six years old, you know, because it's just, you can't, you don't have the freedom of movement. Um, it's different. But I would say um, out of all the countries in the Central America, uh, Central Africa, the Congolese are, are really wonderful people. They, they love to laugh. Their music is great. Um, they're, they're really, it's a, spe- it's a special place on one hand. And they've been through, they've been through the ringer. I mean, yeah. through the wars and, you know, and I mean, Jesus, there's like so much. And your son, who yeah. we had co- talk with last night, I yeah. mean, for, for his age, it's like you're talking yeah, to a so sage. Like, you're, it, you're talking to a, well, you an know, older he grew man. Up, they had like, it's like he saw no color, you know. He grew up, he was with, you know, you know Sunnis and Shias and Pakistanis and, and, um, and, you know, and every kind of African, you know, country. You know, it was like a model little UN. And, he, and what an amazing experience for him to have. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just to be able to talk, you know, and to different people he, he throws into. The, I remember yeah. we were on a vacation in, in Greece, and he goes up. There's this cute little girl. I'm like, Conrad, go talk to her, you know. And he goes up to the parents, and he's like, hi, I'm Conrad. I was born in Bangkok and grew up in, in Congo, and I think your girl, your your daughter is very cute. No way. <laughs> like, just, and I'm like, okay, we're going to have to work on that. Yeah, you're going to have to work on the pitch, dude. I mean, but, but the parents were cute. probably like, oh, but I know, but then, and they thought it was hysterical, luckily. And then they started playing, you know, it had so much, it was cute. It was really cute. So, and the, you've moved out of the Congo. We're, we're, we're sort of embedded in the, in the middle of middle America now, at, at least for the temporarily. 
but you've also the transition from Bangkok. I mean, I the last time I remember seeing you was in Paris all right. those years ago. So it was Paris and then Bangkok and then Congo. And you've lived a ton of other places around the world or spent extended periods of time in all those places. And now you've, you know, the, the latest evolution is you're here in the middle, middle America for now. Um, but you're also... For our son's education. Yeah. And so however long that takes and then who yeah. knows where you're going to go after. But your work also transitioned majorly because you're doing, walking into this house and seeing the sculptures out front, you have completely changed. You are doing metal sculptures, which are a blend of all kinds of things. But tell us how that came to be. So um, there was a bank in Kinshasa called Trust Merchant Bank who had the second floor was an art gallery. And so when we arrived there in 2013, I was still trying to push my, you know, latitude zero. And I was like, I, you know, I want to try to sell the books and, and, and prints. And they gave me an, an amazing exhibit, the whole floor. You know, I did the whole thing, and it was all connected, and it, it was wonderful. And the, um, the German lady, the, the director was German, and his wife did the little catalog for it. And she's like, so, so what are you going to do now? <laughs> you're, you're stuck What's in next? Kinshasa. What's next? And I said, you know, I've always wanted to learn how to weld. And I'd always, I don't know why. I don't know why. It's, I've a, always, it's a macho thing. It's a macho thing, maybe. I don't know. But it's like, but like, funny enough, you know, like, my things aren't that macho I mean there's like a no, feminine no. Yeah. side to it yeah. too whereas so she's like you gotta you gotta meet um Eddie Bikulu and he's an amazing Congolese artist and uh she's like go to this corner and corner he has he's he welds and he's you know he had and yeah so we met we he's like my brother and um I've helped him out and he helped me out and he had and we, yeah, we found, uh, we, we built another studio. We worked on together. And then he would, you know, we'd do other things. And so, like, I started to do it. And then, we, you know, I would sell the little candlestick things, welding. And so it was found objects, you know. you know And then from the plantations, I would go to these, you know, also, or the factories, like, abandoned tire factory where, you know, collected different metal pieces. And, like, I was like put things together whereas he is a real metal bender i mean you know you've seen his work and yeah you know, it's just yeah. like he can bend it and form it like it's just gorgeous um but what a, it was just um it was wonderful and beautiful and so now here i'm either gonna a continue the welding or because i was just like a lot of transition yeah. and um or you know continue doing you know yeah found art it'll i mean it seems to me too it's about pace because pace, yeah. your 10-year yeah. hustle pace, yeah. you know, probably worked you over like it does everybody, right? Yeah, and so yeah. the Equator book was saying, I don't want to be at that pace anymore. Yeah. I want something more thoughtful, more personal at my own pace. Exactly. And now the sculpture and the welding, because you might work on a piece for months and months and months at a time. Because some of these are, just to give people an idea... You have a seahorse that's in your living room that's probably three feet tall. Yeah. And then you've got a seahorse in your office that's probably eight feet tall. Right. And it's probably four feet wide, and it has just all kinds of metal parts and pieces in together. So the, a piece like that might take how long to put together? Like five, six months. Yeah, that's a lot different yeah. than hitting the shutter button. Right. No, and, totally different. Yeah. But it's, it's you know, it's meditative as well. It's methodical. You know, it's, it's a wonderful, you know, when you start welding, it's a total different. I love it. It's a, it's a different. And you think that's the track you're going to stay on? I don't know. I really don't know. I have no idea. So then I, so, you know, we've been, so we finally, I, I found my, my first house in 55 years and remodeled the bathrooms. I'm like being very domesticated. Yeah, you're, you're a normal person But the, the contractor's like, I like your design. You did this. You pulled this off in like three months. He's like, that's crazy. He's like, we got to work together. Like, and so I'm like, well, maybe I should become an interior designer, you know? And he's like, he's like, what would you call it? I'm like, well, maybe mocha design because mocha was what, um, in high school they called me Swiss mocha and my, because my roommate was, um, her father worked for General Foods and that was that, that powdered form, the Swiss mocha, oh, Swiss, like Miss, chocolate, Swiss, Swiss Miss instant cocoa, whatever. Yeah. Oh, totally. yeah. Yodel AEO. So, that was exactly. like the little yodeler person <laughs> on like the that. ad. Oh yeah. I remember that. So I'm like, well maybe mocha, you know, and anyways, but spelled like in the French version, M-O-K-A A. and in Thailand, all the, the feminine ending of every word is ka, you know, like mocha. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm playing around. Who knows? Who I knows? think it could Who knows be anything. What's the next thing? And uh, my mother told me when I was little, um, so Nick, uh, tomorrow we go to my hometown. I haven't been there since I was in fourth grade. Yeah. 
And just south of the hometown, there is a little restaurant that we used to go to as a family. And my mom said that every time they would take me to the restaurant, I would just disappear and I would end up eating at someone else's table. And they would have to go find me, and I could be out in the parking lot. And I was little. And she said, you just constantly were on the move out. And, and my mom said, look, part of, half of our family has wheels for feet, and they're never— And she said, I knew from the time you were a little kid that you were going to leave as soon as you could. Okay. And so I think with you, based on the pattern that we've seen so far in your life, there's never— And even last never night, we were talking start. about, like, this. What, what else is out there? Oh, yeah. I mean, so we—because we originally were going to go to Uruguay. We really were set on going to South America. And then COVID and whatnot, and I knew the school here because that's where I went to school, and so we decided on— so my, my hus- Belgian husband is a little fish out of water, <laughs> but at least we have four acres and he has lots of trees and, around and him. And the dog, who and I can the see dog. right now tearing yeah. around <laughs> exactly. outside. So yeah, it'll be an interesting time. We've already been here two years, but it's been a weird two years, you know, like kind of pre-post, not, like yeah, during COVID and just, you know, like slowing down and like things didn't come from the Congo. I mean, they were like, our stuff was in transition for like eight months and almost a year. Um, so going from a, an apartment to a house. And so I think once things, the dust settles, then, um, I'll probably start, move it again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Rearrange it. Yeah. I have a sinking suspicion that, uh, the (laughs) next time I see you could be, I don't know where, Uh, you know, we had to get out the globe and spin. Yeah, totally. I love that. That's why, you know, I just get a dartboard and, you know, throw a dart and be like, okay, we're going to go here. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. This was great. Um, It's always fun to catch up. And I learned a ton of things about you that I didn't know. And I'm sure there's a million other things that we didn't get to. But it's a pretty crazy conversation to to have a talk with you because it's so worldly, international, interesting, layered, you know, kind of a curious thing. So I appreciate it. And I know that everybody's going to love, love hearing this. I appreciate the time too. And if someone wants to see your work, where can they find it? Uh, On the website, moniquestauder.com, S-T-A-U-D-E-R. All right. Well, um, I look forward to seeing you in a welding mask. Yes. (laughs) And uh, thanks again. Yep. You're welcome. Bye.